This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need-to-know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Learning Fellow at GOSH. I'm joined on the podcast today by Ms. Dania Mulisari, who is one of the consultant paediatric surgeons at Great Ormond Street. She's going to be talking to me about the diagnosis of malrotation volvulus, covering the pathophysiology, presentation, assessment and surgical management of this condition, corresponding to aspects of the neonatology and gastroenterology sections of the MRC-PCH curriculum. Thank you very much, Dania, for coming on the show today. Thank you, Emma, for having me. Can I start by asking what you would like people to get out of this podcast? I would hope that this podcast will enable the listeners to have a clear understanding of the important facts about malrotation, including embryology, functional implications, clinical presentation management, and a little bit on long-term outcomes. Fantastic. Yeah, they sound like really good learning outcomes. I guess just starting with the very basics, what is malrotation volvulus and how common is it? Well, when we talk about malrotation, this is a congenital abnormality of abnormal rotation and fixation of the midgut within the abdominal cavity. The incidence is reported to be as high as 1 in 500 live births, but not all of them may become symptomatic. Of those who present with symptoms, most of these, up to 50%, will present by the age of a month. And then overall, 60% by a year and 75% by five years of age or so. So it is relatively common pathology, but the symptomatic presentation is highest in the neonatal and the incense periods. Could you talk a little bit more about the pathophysiology? You said it's a congenital condition. But what's the significance of the congenital abnormality and why is it such an important condition to know about? Yes, so the importance of this abnormality is the significant morbidity and mortality that can result from the midgut volvulus, including need for emergency surgery, bowel resection, loss of significant amount of small bowel, short guts, and even death. So if we use traditional embryology at about four weeks, the physiological herniation of the primary internal loop happens. So the primary internal loop comes out of the abdominal cavity. In a couple of weeks, and it then starts the initial part of the rotation, which is a 90-degree rotation around an axis formed by the superior mesenteric artery. The rotation is happening in a counterclockwise direction as you're looking at it from the front. After all of this small bowel goes out, Around 10 weeks, these loops then come back into the abdominal cavity. And this time, there is a continuation of the rotation with another 180 degree in the same direction. After this comes back, then you'll have the fixation of the different parts. So the proximal part of this is fixed over the left side of the vertebral pedicle and the sponsor ligament of And then it goes across and down to the right iliac fossa where the cecal bud is then fixed. So you have this very wide base mesentery. So following a normal 
rotation and fixation. The base of the small valve is mesentery, as we were explaining, was long, and therefore it's difficult for this to twist. If, however, this normal process of rotation and fixation does not happen, what can result is a narrow-based mesentery, which makes the twisting easier. And when that twist happens, the mesenteric artery, which is in the axis of this, is then obstructed, causing the ischemia and potentially loss of the whole of that midgut. And that is why the volvulus is the part that is the most catastrophic about the malrotation. Right. Okay. So the midgut malrotation is a congenital abnormality, but then it's the volvulus occurring as a result of that malrotation that causes it to become a surgical emergency. That's correct. Yes. So presumably you can get midgut malrotation where volvulus hasn't occurred. Is this still a problem? Yes. So malrotation is this abnormal position in which the gut has not rotated into the normal positions and got fixed in the normal positions. So absolutely, this is the baseline of those children with the abnormal anatomy. And in this itself, you can have these peritoneal bands, which are fixed across different parts of this narrow-based mesentery, especially some of them go across the duodenum, and that itself can cause an obstruction. And that can be the reason for their presentation in DNAs. But volvulus then happens when this twists because of the narrow-based mesentery, because of the abnormal anatomy in malrotation. So what causes them to present can be either malrotation or volvulus. So if it is a simple malrotation, they may present very early on in life if there are bands that are obstructing the lumen of the duodenum, so you get the green vomits. If it is an intermittent phenomenon or if it is a late presentation, it's likely that it's twisting and untwisting. So it's intermittently presenting with a volvulus. So you can have symptoms in malrotation, but volvulus is where it becomes catastrophic in life-threatening. Okay, that makes sense. And we'll talk a little bit more about presentation later on in the podcast. Are there any risk factors that are known to predispose to the condition? Well, there are lots of congenital abnormalities which are known to have increased incidence of abnormal rotation. So when we say abnormal rotation, it can be of two types. It can be that the bowel is in what we call a non-rotated position, which is almost in a neutral position, but it has not fixed in the abnormal position. Or it can be a completely mal-rotated position, which is fixed and therefore more risky. So several conditions such as the abdominal wall defects, congenital diaphragmatic hernia, these are associated with non-rotatory positions. There are other abnormalities such as atrial isomerism, which is associated with varying degrees and types of malrotation. But these are quite specific and the management will be decided by individual surgeons based on those specific presentations. So we won't go into too much of detail in that as that can become too complicated. Can midgut malrotation be picked up on antenatal ultrasound? So is it something that you can diagnose and know is present? before an infant is born? No, it's not something that you can pick up antenatally because antenatal ultrasound would usually look for specific and fixed points of dilatation, measurement, things like that. The rotation of the bowel is a bit more complicated to be able to diagnose it antenatally. 
but when we talk about investigations, we we'll talk about how ultrasound is now increasingly contributory as an investigation postnatally. Okay, sure. Thank you. Moving on now to think a bit more about presentation, and you've already said that how infants present can be variable dependent on whether they just have malrotation or whether they've developed volvulus. Could you talk a bit more about the different ways that neonates and infants might typically present with malrotation? So the majority of neonates will present with green vomiting, and that's in about 90 to 95%. Having said that, so the first part to remember is that our surgical dogma is that a green vomiting baby has a surgical problem on otherwise. But having said that, 20 to 50% of these babies only will have a surgical cause. So it's not that that's always there, but when it's there, it's usually one important enough. And this particular one is not only a common one, but also a time critical one. And that is why it's important not to miss this in your top of your differential diagnosis. It is important not to be reassured by a soft and non-tender abdomen and even a normally abdominal x-ray, as these are all possible in the neonate with malrotation presenting with brain vomiting. In later stages, they can also have abdominal distension, either from having had obstructed bowel in that warm segment or proximal to the warm segment, or they can have complications such as perforation. And then you have peritonitis and a tender abdomen with guarding, systemic signs of tachycardia, shock, acidosis. And in later stages, again, you can have blood-stained aspirates in the nasogastric tube or in the stool, which can be secondary to the ischemia of the gut. In older children, malnutrition can present with intermittent vomiting, Occasionally, this can also be non-bilious, and sometimes they present with failure to thrive and almost malnutrition type of picture because the absorption has been poor and so slightly more non-specific symptoms as you go into older children. When you're assessing an infant with suspected volvulus, are there any particular features to ask about in the history or look for an examination that will help you narrow down your differential diagnosis? Clinically, it's very tricky to differentiate. And that's why we always talk about we need to exclude it by doing an investigation, really, to know that we have confirmed this is not present. So, as I said, we start with the general rule of thumb saying that neonates who has green vomits have a surgical cause, actually, and otherwise. One of the common causes or surgical causes of green vomiting would be malnutrition in a term DNA as opposed to we're not talking about the pre-terms when we're talking about, you know, sepsis, prematurity, NEC, all of those. But a term DNA, otherwise born way, and then green vomit is always worrying for this. Clinical examination can be very variable from a completely normal soft non-tender abdomen and hemodynamically stable in the initial stages with the malnutrition only until they have vomited long enough that they have started to become dehydrated, tachycardic, et cetera. Or they have got to the point of complication that you've got an obstruction, causing a distension or a perforation, causing a peritonitis. And then you're looking at a collapsed baby who is in shock, and then it's very difficult to differentiate what the cause could be. So difficult to clinically diagnose this. So we, we have to use our investigations for this. So with that in mind, what investigations would be first line in order to aid your diagnosis? So the gold standard investigation for malrotation 
with or without Morbulus has been an upper GI contrast. And what we are doing here is looking at the position of the duodenal jejunal flexure. And as I was explaining, as the midgut comes back into the abdominal cavity, in the normal baby, the duodenal jejunal flexure, the ligament of is attached to the left of the left-sided pedicle of the vertebra. So that's the first point that we're looking for, is that the DJ flexure is positioned to the left of the left-sided pedicle. The second part is that we want to see that the duodenum is retroperitoneal, the D3. And the way we look at that is that the DJ does go backwards as you look at the lateral aspect on the imaging. And it goes up to the level of the pylorus. So those are the three factors that we're looking at in the upper GI contrast to assess for whether there is malrotation or not. Occasionally, when this is not conclusive, and if it is a more chronic presentation, things like the position of the cecum can help because you want to see whether the knee center is wide based. If you have got a wide distance between the DJ and the cecum, and so one would be on an upper GI contrast and the other one would be on a, on a contrast enema. So you're looking at that length that would be supportive to understand if this is a narrow base knee entry or not. But having said that, if it's an acute presentation and the contrast study is non-diagnostic, then traditionally the way has been to explore by a laparotomy or a laparoscopy to confirm or more importantly rule out malrotation. Okay, so if you're still not sure based on the upper GI contrast study, you'd have a low threshold for taking them to theatre anyway to explore what was going on. You mentioned earlier um, about potential role for ultrasound in the diagnosis. Could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, so th this has been what we have been doing for a long time, but more recently, what we had started to do, especially as an institution, and there's only a couple of institutions in the UK who are doing this now, but internationally, this has been increasingly the ultrasound scan as a another modality, which is no radiation. And in the appropriately trained hands, the specificity is very high. The sensitivity is close enough to that of an upper contrast study. So when we're asking for an ultrasound study to look for malrotation, what the radiologist is looking for is the orientation of the superior mesenteric artery and the vein is the first part. So the vein should be on the right side and the artery should be on the left side in the normal anatomy. The second and as important is whether the deep lead, the third part of the duodenum is retroperitoneal. So that should be seen between the superior mesenteric artery and the vein in front of it and the aorta behind it. And the greatest sensitivity is when there is a presence of volvulus, when you can see the SMV, the supremacy vein coiling around the artery, giving the appearance of a whirlpool. So increasingly, ultrasound is being used with good sensitivity and specificity and negates a role for an apogee contrast. And at times, the two are used together to give us, if one is inconclusive, then use the second one. Okay, but I guess the limitation of ultrasound and perhaps the reason why it's only used in a couple of centres in this country is because it's quite user-dependent and you need Absolutely. people that are trained in its use. Yeah. It is very specific in that it needs amount of training and it needs to be someone who is regularly doing these and therefore will have to be a paediatric radiologist who sees this all the time. Sure. 
So you said earlier that in a term neonate with green vomiting, you know, it's, it's a surgical diagnosis until proven otherwise. What are the other important surgical diagnoses other than malrotation volvulus that you would be looking to exclude at this stage? So surgical causes can be anything that causes an obstruction beyond the second part of the duodenum where the bile is getting into the gastrointestinal tract. So this can include things like atresia, anything from duodenal atresia, genital atresia, or much further down, depending on how quickly they're presenting. Because if you've got an obstruction quite high, they would present with green vomits quite early. Whereas if the obstruction is way lower, it will take time for it to build up, get some abdominal distension first before they may then start to have the green vomits. So obstruction of any kind in the gastrointestinal tract, which in the neonates, apart from malnutrition, the commonest would be an atresia. And then once you've excluded a surgical condition, what are the other differential diagnoses of bilious vomiting? The common differentials that we always have to consider are sepsis, a history of prolonged rupture of membranes, any history supportive of any other sources of sepsis. And then we move on to the other things like metabolic endocrine abnormalities, which may cause vomiting, which may initially even be non-bilious and then may have time to become bilious vomiting. So non-surgical causes, there is a longer list to go through, but these would be the most common ones when you're considering a presentation of which are the end to the green vomit. Moving on now to think a bit about management. How do you manage malrotation volvulus? So the definitive management of malnutrition and volvulus is surgical correction. Depending on the equity of the presentation, the initial management will include fluid resuscitation, nasogastric decompression of the stomach, and the investigations including making sure the blood gas is done electrolytes for blood clots so that these can be as much as possible normalized to have a safe general anesthetic and surgery. Okay, so after the initial resuscitation, the management is surgical. And you mentioned earlier that this is a a time-critical surgery. How quickly do you need to get them to theatre? And does this differ depending on whether you think you're dealing with just malrotation or whether it's kind of a full-on twisted volvulus? So again, this depends on the presentation. On one side, if you know that the child is malrotation, the volvulus can happen any time. So that's already time critical. So ideally, we would want to do it that night, especially if they've already presented with green vomiting, because we cannot be 100% sure, even if we did not see the volvulus on a contrast. And also the contrast may have missed it because it wasn't worth at the time the contrast was done. So they may have had green vomiting and they've had a contrast, which shows a malrotation, but it doesn't show a volvulus. Mm. But was there a volvulus which will happen again in the next five minutes? Mm. So the tricky one to be reassured, to say that you can wait till the next day. So most of us would say you do still consider this time critical. The only ones which we probably can be safer to leave is the ones who have presented much later with chronic symptoms, not usually green vomiting. It's more incidentally picked up when they were being investigated for things like gastroesophageal reflux or failure to thrive. So in those children, we tend to not do it if you just happen to do a contrast at three o'clock in the afternoon on an elective basis. 
you wouldn't necessarily do an operation that night. So we give them all the safety netting to say this is the risk. And if green vomiting happens, then it does become an emergency. But otherwise, we try to do it on a soonish inactive list. Okay, that makes sense. And then can you talk me through what the surgical management involves? So coming to the surgical management, this starts with confirmation of diagnosis using either a laparoscopic or an open access. The first part is to assess for presence of a volvinus. If there is one, this is detorted, and then we check for the viability of any of the ward sections of the bowel. During this process, there is a significant risk of ischemia repercussion injury, and we have to work closely with the anesthetist to make sure that they're aware as we're doing this as they may go into needing more support for their blood pressure, acidosis, oxygenation, all of those. The second part after the detoxion or if the volvulus is not present is addressing the malrotation itself. And this part is termed the LADS procedure. The main parts of this involves straightening of the duodenum. Previously, I mentioned there can be bands that are obstructing the duodenum. So we want to remove the obstructing bands and we straighten the duodenum so that you know, bowel contents can pass straight through without having any things or hold up. And what we are looking at is placing all of the small bowel on the right side of the child and all of the large bowel on the left side of the child. And we do this by widening the mesentery. As we explained earlier, the mesentery typically in malrotation is narrow. So there's many mesentric bands which are keeping it narrow, which makes their mesentery easy to twist. So we are releasing those bands, making the mesentery wide and placing this in this configuration, which we now call a non-rotated position. And what we're doing essentially is reducing the risk of rotation, uh, a twist happening now, a war with us. But importantly, what we have to remember is that we are not actually putting it in a normal position. So the operation for malrotation does not put it in a normally rotated position. We are just reducing the amount of abnormal fixation and therefore reducing the risk of volvulus, but it still does remain to a lesser extent. Okay, sure. Do they then go on to have further surgery to make things more normal or is it okay just to kind of leave them as they are? It's more because there isn't anything we can do to make it more normal. So we are placing it in a position that's as much physically feasible for us to do in an artificial way. And then we are depending on the adhesions from having had the surgery to keep them you know, more stuck in those places so that the, the twisting is much more difficult. So no, there are no further planned surgeries to make anything different, but we always make sure that the parents and the treating clinicians and the pediatricians are aware that they have had this surgery for malnutrition. There is still a risk for further problems, including a recurrent volvulus. Right. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask a little bit about that. What is the risk of recurrence after a LADS procedure? So in an open LADS procedure, recurrent risk is about one to 2%. In the laparoscopic series, this is reported to be higher in up to 5%. And this we think is likely to be because the adhesions are much less in laparoscopy. And therefore, the flip side of it is that the risk of adhesion obstruction later following an open 
Lance procedure is significantly higher, whereas the risk of adhesion obstruction in the laparoscopic lens is lower. So th there's that balance of one versus the other in either procedure. Yeah, because I was going to say, normally in surgery, you'd want to kind of minimize adhesions, but this is a time when adhesions might give you, you know, a slight benefit to the child. Very much so, yes. Other than recurrence, are there any other important post-operative complications to be aware of? And apart from the, you know, any abdominal procedure and intestinal surgery causing a bit of bleeding, risk of infection, post-operative ileus, because there is a lot of bowel handling that needs to be done. It can take a couple of days before the bowel gets going normally. But in the long term, it, it's mainly the small risk of recurrent volvulus and adhesion obstruction. And if the lance is not being complete enough in that there are still some bands which are keeping it in a normal position, there can be ongoing issues. So especially thinking about children who present much later, like the 13, 14 year olds, they may have been chronically positioned in abnormal places. Sometimes parts have been warped, but not enough to cause this, an obstruction to have an acute presentation. So that can then tend to distend the lymphatic channels, leak of the lymphatic tunnels into the abdomen, quite a scarred abdomen. And that may not recover very quickly just because you have done a lance procedure because that has been going on for several years. So it can be a protracted recovery in cases of very delayed presentation if it's been a chronic picture of symptoms which have gone on for a long time. Finally, moving on to our standard quickfire questions. And any regular listeners might notice that we've changed the first question a little bit for this podcast just because we're interviewing a paediatric surgeon rather than a paediatrician who, of course, hasn't taken the MRC-PCH themselves. So the first quickfire question is, as a paediatric surgeon, what do you feel it's important for a general paediatrician to know about this subject? And what would you ask them in an exam? I think from an exam perspective, although I haven't done these exams, this from my discussions, what I would say is to be aware of the clinical scenarios that we have gone through in terms of how does a child with malnutrition present. So a term baby presenting with brain vomiting, why do we have malnutrition as one of the top differentials? What are your other differentials? How does that compare or contrast with a baby who is like an ex-26 weeker who's presenting with green bilious aspirate. So, you know, how the change in the primary likely diagnosis, even if it is just among the surgical diagnosis, the changes and how the time critical element of it has to come forward when you're thinking about malrotation. Great, thank you. Secondly, are there any useful resources that you would recommend to listeners who want to find out more about malrotation volvulus? As you can expect, there's hundreds and thousands of papers on the subject, but if you just want a quick review, there's a paper in Seminars of Pediatric Surgery 2022. So if you just PubMed as Malrotation and Seminars Pediatric Surgery 2022, there's a nice summary which brings all of the aspects of it up to date. So that, that would be a good one to look at. Fantastic. Finally, what are your three takeaway learning points from the podcast today? Green vomiting in a neonatal child is surgical until proven otherwise. And malnutrition is one of the common surgical causes of bilious vomiting, especially in neonates. A child with green vomiting presenting with malnutrition should have an urgent upper GI study or ultrasound by a 
suitably qualified pediatric radiologist to confirm the diagnosis. This is the time critical transfer with risk of mid gut loss or short gut death, which does still happen, unfortunately, because of delay and which is preventable. And final thing would be that children who have had surgery for malnutrition can have complications, including recurrent formulas and adhesion obstruction, presenting with similar features as the first time with green vomiting, still needs urgent attention and investigation for these in a very timely fashion. Fantastic. Yeah, I think those are three really important points. So I'm really glad you've highlighted them. Thank you so much for giving me such an excellent overview of this topic. And yeah, I hope everyone finds it really helpful. Thank you very much, Dania. Thanks, Emma. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.